the cross. It hangs on our necks. We find them in our houses, in jewelry boxes, or as decorations scattered around our walls. You find them, of course, in churches, on top of churches. You find them on mountainsides. You find them in cemeteries. Think of Arlington and the many marking the dead. Crosses are ubiquitous in that way in our culture. They're found everywhere. In that way, we're very familiar with the cross. And interestingly, those who actually knew what the crucifixion was about, so let's take a a Roman from the first century, if you could put him in a DeLorean, time travel him to today, and bring him to our age, and he sees all of the crosses scattered all over our countryside and our homes, he would think that we are a deranged, a sick, and twisted people. For he finds in the cross great revulsion, maybe something akin to how we think about Auschwitz. For it was a place of torture. And it was one he would be very familiar with, for the cross in his own day was a very common thing too, but much different than ours. For example, the ancient historian from the first century, Josephus, noted that some 2,000 Jews were crucified at one time because of a revolt in Judea. That's just one horrifying example. Let alone when Jerusalem was eventually taken over near 70 AD, the conquering general Titus was said to have crucified hundreds of Jews outside of the Jerusalem walls, 500 a day at times. The cross was everywhere. It was everywhere a reminder of horror. Yes, it was something very common, but commonly horrific and terrible. To have a Jewish man then from Galilee hanging out to die just outside the city walls in Jerusalem, that's commonplace. Dime a dozen happens regularly. It's horrible, but he would tell you, yes, but we've seen it all before many times. The cross was an everyday part of Roman life in the Roman world, a sadistic part, something that they were not even to mention in polite conversation, something the Romans in that way wished, and the Jews with them, to forget. So it is, though many Jewish men had died on a cross just outside Jerusalem before, there have been many to come before, but this death that we see in Matthew 27 is entirely different because the one who was crucified was far different than any who had come before him. Matthew in our text this morning wishes to show you just how different and how extraordinary the death of Jesus truly was. The word for us this morning is then this, see the extraordinary nature of Jesus' death so that you would confess, believe, fall on your knees and worship Him as the truly and only Son of God, the only Savior. It was an extraordinary death because he was an extraordinary man like no other, doing and accomplishing extraordinary things by his single death, the salvation of all his people. So for many of us, of course, trust trust Christ. This would be a great encouragement to you, to what Christ has done for you on the cross, that he has not made salvation possible, but he's accomplished it and won. So may we bask in the glory of what our Lord has accomplished, especially as we come to the remembrance at this table. But then too, of course, for any who are outside of Christ, if you have yet to give yourself to the only Savior, Jesus Christ, this is the call now. Humble yourself, for He will take you if you confess Him. But we see the extraordinary nature of our Christ as we consider the question, what did Jesus' death do? 
What did Jesus' death really do? And we're going to see four things this morning that his death, his extraordinary death accomplished that was like no other. And first of all, what did the death of Christ do? What did his death mean? It meant that he was being forsaken. He was being cursed by God, but he was doing it for you. In the first place, this cursing, this forsaking that he endured, it's shown to us by Matthew as he records the supernatural darkness that now covers the land overshadowing the Jesus who's writhing on the cursed tree. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And immediately the implication is this darkness is not normal. This is not typical even for that part of the world. This is unnatural. There was no natural explanation for what was happening in this moment. And the gospel writers highlight this as they tell you what time of day it was when all of this darkness was pervading over the scene of the cross. It notes there that this darkness covered the land from the sixth to then the ninth hour. And by the Roman reckoning of time to translate it to our own, even our own ESV translation at the bottom helps you. When is the sixth hour? But high noon. When the sun was at its apex, this is the middle of the day. The sun is right overhead, giving the most light, brightly shining down, casting the smallest of shadows, if any, except on this day. Somehow, the sun did not give its light or some kind of darkness, a supernatural fog hung over the land, blocking out the sun overhead. And we know this darkness was not momentary. It took a span of three hours from 12 to 3 p.m. by our reckoning of time. And again, this is when the sun shines the brightest in the day, isn't it? When it is the most glorious, and yet it could not be seen. A supernatural darkness eclipsed it. And we've seen or heard of other things in Scripture just like this. Uh, Recall that at the Exodus... As the Lord was judging Egypt and the gods of Egypt, bringing his people out of there, he sent this great darkness over the land of Egypt, so dark it was a darkness you could feel, except where his people dwelt, there was light. Or we also hear about this kind of darkness in a place to come, like in Joel and Isaiah. They predict a great darkness will cover the earth at the end. And also, there was darkness in the very beginning, do you remember, in the creation account? It begins with darkness hovering over the waters. There was a chaos, a void, a disorder, and then God spoke light and order into being, with it life. But here then, the sign of darkness over the cross is a sign of a curse. This is the judgment of God, justice poured out on the cross. Or more precisely, we would say, it's being poured out on Jesus such that at the ninth hour he cries out in anguish. Now looking at verse 46. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of misery, agony, heartbreak, torment. Sounds hopeless, doesn't it? My God. My God, won't you hear me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you disowned me? Why have you canceled me, rejected me? What's going on? This is the cry from hell, if we can say it that way, to be deserted by God. Life is gone. Hope is gone because God is gone. 
And then in the cursed darkness, he cries out, why, God, why? He appears just from the verbiage here to be questioning God, isn't he? Is his faith now faltering at this most crucial moment? It's interesting, though, that even as he cries out, my God, my God, why? He has not abandoned all faith. And this is evidenced because the very words he says are taken from the word of God. This is a quote from Psalm 22. He's not merely feeling forsaken. He is being forsaken. And yet he still leans on the words of God. He will not let go. For it is these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're taken right out of Psalm 22, which opens just this way. Psalm 22 reads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I do not find rest. Have you felt like that? Forsaken? Crying out in the dark and it seems no one's listening? You pray, and it seems like your prayers, they don't even go above the ceiling. God's not listening, it seems like. He's hung up. He's closed shop. He cut the line. He shut the door on your prayers. He deleted your message. He's had enough. He's turned his back. And then you wonder, what did I do? What did I say? What, What did I not do? How did I sin? What mess up was it? Forgive me, oh God. I need you now. Why won't you hear me? And then in all your desperate cries, he chooses not to hear, it seems, but to leave you alone. And with that, you feel it. Forsaken. Where are you, God? I need you now more than ever. And then yet, even from the ashes... Of this anguished cry arise two revitalizing hopes. First, it's this. At times of struggle, real struggle that we walk through, tears, crying, discouragement, turmoil, despair even, we have in Christ's example the truth that those moments are not strange to the people of God. Case in point, you have Jesus himself crying out. But crying out with David's own words from Psalm 22. Whatever the situation, David at one time or another, he too felt forsaken. Crying out in the darkness. And yet God doesn't yet answer. And so Jesus reminds us this morning, and David has reminded us, the people of God, the fathers of faith of old, they've been here before. They have felt forsaken. They've cried out. They've even despaired. They're ready to give up. And God did hear. And God did rescue. And God did deliver but perhaps not yet or not when we wanted it. It's a word then to trust in him still. His very promises, his purposes, they will not be undone. They they will not be disappointed. And that's the first encouragement here. The feeling of darkness is not reason to stay away or turn away or throw in the towel, but it's reason to lean in and honestly, even honestly struggle with that before him. He invites you. If the Son of God can cry out, why, can we not at least ask humbly in prayer the same? He hears even still. He still cares. And He delivers all those looking to Him. Keep looking. Keep leaning. 
And we know that because of Jesus' cry here in the cross. And this is the great second encouragement. My God, he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was his question. Why? Why are we going through this? But we know exactly why, don't we? We return to that beautiful song of Isaiah's suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 again. Why? Well, surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That's why he was being smitten by God. That's why he's afflicted. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why? Because upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Why? Because we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his one way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. And so then the punishment for us all who trust in him. He took our sins, he was being crushed for them, he was being forsaken, bearing our sins. Why? So the gospel truths would ring for every believer who looks to Christ. Promises like Hebrews 13, 5, where God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And how do we know that's true? Because sometimes we don't feel it, do we? We feel something very different in the struggle of our heart. How do we know that's true? He will never leave us or forsake us. We know because of this cry on the cross. We know because he was forsaken for us in our place. So that you would never be. He cried out so that God would never leave you. So that God would never forsake you. So that God would never turn his back on you. So God would never desert or abandon you. Christ won you and purchased you back for God. He made you at peace with God. So we will never be separated from him, despite what we might feel. So there it is. We may feel forsaken. We may feel abandoned. Or we may feel like God isn't listening. But this cry from the cross tells us otherwise. Despite what we feel, this cry on our behalf preaches to us the truth. That Christ is for us. God is for us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Because what would separate you from him now? Why would he turn his back on you now if he's given you his son? But then we interject, but Rick, what of my sin? What of my apathy even after becoming a Christian? What of my struggles? What of my weaknesses? What of my lapses? But the truth is this. Did not Christ bear all of those? Even those. Did he not already pay the price for all of those? Did, was he not forsaken on the cross for those? Because he wasn't forsaken for his sin, was he? He had none. He was forsaken for yours. So that you could know that you would never have to cry that cry. In that anguish of the forsaken cry, hear hope. He cried it out for you and it's done. What else did his death do? He was abandoned for you. Verses 47 through 49. Admittedly, this is similar to the last point, but we're taking a a slightly different angle on it. He was forsaken by the Father as his wrath was poured out. That was seen in the darkness and in his cry. But he's also abandoned and in a different way. That is, no one comes to help him. No one's going to come and rescue him and relieve him of his suffering. Though, like we saw last week, this is only ironically true because it seems like people run to his aid in the moment. But as we unpack this, we see they're not coming to help him. 
but only to hurt and to further mock him. So let's see it. He cries out in anguish, and the onlookers hear it, verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. This explains why Matthew recorded Jesus' words from the cross in his own mother tongue. That is, of course, I hope you well realize that Jesus on earth never spoke English, despite all of the red letters in your Bible. Aramaic was his first language. And in his pain and prayer, he resorts to that mother tongue, Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Of course, in translation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in hearing this, the onlookers only find another way to mock him. As he cries out, my God, Eli, they mockingly suggest, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Ha, ha, ha. And so they move to sustain him there on the cross to prolong his life. Maybe Elijah will show up. Ha, ha, ha. Verse 48. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. This was no move of mercy by the onlookers. They were trying to increase his pain, if only to quench his thirst for a moment and so sustain him for another moment that he might then hang there for another moment and suffer. But we saw this last time, but it's revisited here again. All of this is happening just as the prophets predicted, laying out the saving plan of God. Psalm 69 verse 21 predicts it precisely. When it reads, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Here it is. They are fulfilling Scripture, even as they mock Him. Fulfilling the very purposes of God and Jesus' death and the saving of His people. But of course, they had no idea of any of that. They were just trying to make fun of Jesus. We get a sense of their motives as we look at the next verse, verse 49. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Ha, ha, ha. They didn't think Elijah was coming. They knew he wasn't coming. So they mock him in his anguish. And yet, but truth be told, neither did Jesus think Elijah was coming. And why was that? Now, the prophets said Elijah would come before the Messiah would arrive and minister. We find that out in the book of Malachi in particular. So plug, you can hear about that on Wednesday night here at 7 o'clock this week as we study Malachi. See you then. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, meet you here. Love to have you. We're finishing up the Minor Prophets. We'll be in Malachi and we'll see this prophecy. But more than that, as the prophets predicted that Elijah would come before the Messiah, what have we seen in this gospel already? Jesus told us in this gospel that the Elijah already came. The Elijah-like forerunner already arrived. And who was it? It was John the Baptist. We heard that in Matthew 11 and Matthew 17. That promise of the Elijah coming had already been fulfilled. And they did to Elijah, Jesus brought up, just as they are now doing to their Messiah. They rejected him. They mocked him. They murdered him. What's the point? No one's coming to save Jesus on the cross. Because that's the plan. By intention, he's left there to be abandoned. No one's coming to save him. But it's supposed to be like that. It's the very promise 
And prophecy from Psalm 69 has reminded us that even down to the smallest details, God is fulfilling all of His Word to save His people. Even to the smallest of details of sour wine or vinegar being made to be drunk by the Messiah, now on the cross. And understand, that that prophecy was given some 1,000 years before Jesus would even take that last drink. Every detail plays out just as the Father and Son had planned, and even so long before that, before creation. And then you have Jesus in the garden saying, not my will, but your will be done. And here he is, fulfilling the will of the Father, being abandoned, drinking the cup. And he did so for the glory of God and his Father, and he did it for you. All according to plan, he was forsaken, he was abandoned, again, that you would never be. He was mocked. He was punished, so you would never be. He was being left alone on the cross to die while no one would come rescue him, for this is the very way that he will rescue you, and that for all time. So here he cries out, and they mock him to say, no one will save you, and yet by this very way is how he saves us, just as he meant to do. What else did Jesus' death do? Well, we see in verse 50, he was killed for us. This is what his death was about in summary. Here it is in verse 50, the astonishing thing. Jesus, the Son of God, dies. Nothing then about his death is normal or typical. Because this is not the death of any normal man. This is the death of the Son of God. And so see this, the Son of God killed for you, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now understand, to die like this when being crucified, to die the way Jesus did, that's not normal. You don't cry out with strength in your last moment with a loud voice. The very nature of crucifixion as a means of death was to be torturous, yes, but also debilitating. It squeezed the life out of you. Often, actually, suffocation might be the means of death. For as you hung there on the cross, arms stretched out, the weight of your body would be pulling you down, constricting your chest cavity and your breathing. The only way to get a breath was to pull yourself up, which meant pushing up by your arms, which of course have been pierced or hung there and have losing all the blood as it is, and then your feet, which have been nailed probably to the post. You're pushing against the nail in your shins to lift yourself up that you might open your chest cavity to take a breath. Even as your lacerated back from the scourging rubs up and down against the surely rough cross. You pull yourself up just to get a single grasp of air until your muscles spasm. You shake and collapse there on the cross. You fall down, not breathing again to try and stir up strength once more, to push yourself up, to take a grasp of air, and to do this for hours, sometimes days. As I said, most will actually suffocate on the cross, will be their cause of death. This then explains what happens to the other two that are crucified with Jesus. John's Gospel notes how their legs are broken to speed up their demise. 
See, with the broken legs, the pain was too horrible. Sometimes the shock of that alone will cause you to die. But at the very least, if you survive them breaking your legs, the pain was too horrible to even try and push yourself up, push yourself up any longer, and you would suffocate and die. The physical agony, of course, was literally excruciating. And that wasn't even the primary suffering of Christ on the cross, though very real. It was the darkness, the forsaking, the rejection from His Father for bearing our sins. And the physical torture was just a whole part of the ordeal. But you understand, under that physical torment, at the end, you don't cry out with a loud voice. You don't have a voice. You gasp, you whisper, if you can try and speak at all. But not this Jesus, and not in this death. He cries loud with a loud voice. Why? Because this was no normal death. Rather, he wasn't losing, he won, and he cries out in victory, you see. Even the soldiers watching this recognize how strange this was. Here's how Mark's gospel records it for us. This is the conclusion the Romans draw watching Jesus die just like this. With this loud shout. Mark 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, the centurion said, truly this man was the Son of God. Think about this. This Roman soldier was probably an expert on crucifixion. He knew every stage of the cross, where that person was, how he was getting closer and closer to death. Oh yeah, I remember this part. This is where they start to spasm in all of their muscles. Oh yeah, this is where they lose their voice and they're just dying basically of thirst. Oh yes, I can tell he's about to die. He'll be done in about an hour. He was an expert. He knew what death looked like. And he knew no one died like this on the cross, defiant with such strength and with a shout and loud cry. For despite my outline that keeps everything nice and parallel for us, It's even not quite right to say that Jesus was killed. For he told his disciples earlier in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And note the way it's even phrased in Matthew. He yields up or gives up his spirit. He's in control here. He's not powerless. They don't kill him. They don't steal his life. They don't take it from him. He lays it down. He gives it up. He's not powerless in this moment. He's not at the end of his rope. He wasn't gasping for air. He's not fighting for his life. He's laying it down, giving it over for his friends who trust him. That's why with strength at the end, he can say, I've won. And he has the victor's cry which John's gospel actually gives us those last words from Jesus' lips. This is John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, Jesus said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All that his perfect life on earth had worked up to, all that he came to do, coming from heaven to save his people from their sins. All he came to do, he's saying, now it's accomplished. I finished it all. And understand, this word finished does not mean he merely did the work and it happened to that moment and now it's passed over and move on. As if, well, there's nothing more I can do now. 
No, it's finished because it has been finished and that completion continues forever. That is, it's finished because there's nothing more that even can be done. Because it's done, it's complete, it's been paid and for all time. And that forever, that all time is unchanging. There's no more work to be done. In Christ, you're standing with God. It never changes. It never gets better. You can't improve upon the cross. May we never try. But your standing with God never gets worse. Because the debt was completely paid. The author of Hebrews picks up and leverages the same word for it is finished when he writes this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected or has completed or finished. And that for all time, those who are being sanctified. There's nothing more to be done. It's completely fulfilled. There's nothing more he could do to save you from your sin. He completed the whole job. So when he finally did die there, he didn't give out. He didn't give up. He didn't throw in the towel. He just finished the work. He won your soul from death and hell. There's nothing more to be done. What did Jesus' death really do? We've touched on this. But we see in the end that he was victorious for you. Verses 51 to 54. Jesus' death was no ordinary death. Namely because his death accomplished something. His death was powerful. And Matthew gives us a glimpse into the power of Jesus' death by drawing out four immediate results. These are like the aftershocks after the colossal moment of the death of the Son of God. There's four of them. And it starts with this, that the veil in the temple is torn. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In case you're unaware, this veil was... Within the temple, it's what separated, proved the last great separator between God and man. The temple was the place you go to meet God, where he fellowships on earth with his people. And yet there was this veil, ultimately, that separated you from him. Because understand, even to the temple itself, access was quite limited. Only the priests were allowed into the temple proper, but even that had two parts. The holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And it was separated by this veil, such that the normal priest could not go behind the veil ever. There was one priest who could. He was the high priest, and he could only go once a year. We hear about this. This is in, by summary way, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. But into the second place, that is the holy of holies, behind the veil... Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. So you see, the one guy who got exclusive access, when he gets to go behind the curtain, he's got to go with a sacrifice in hand. He's got to go with blood that he must sprinkle on the ark, because he must show there's a death that's taken place that's allowed me to get in here, because I can't get in because I'm a sinner. And an animal's died in my place. And even when he gets in there, he doesn't get to hang out in there. The dawdled is have sweet conversations with God or something. As a sinner, as every priest was, he doesn't get to hang out with a holy God. He, he, he can't get too close. He can't be there too long. Even if he brings a sacrifice, 
Animal sacrifice anyway. There was exclusive access. And even then, you couldn't get very close. But then, when Jesus died, that temple veil was ripped in two. And from top to bottom. As if God from heaven himself was ripping it apart. So the separation that was between God and man's gone. Why? How, how can that separator be destroyed? Well, how, why was that separator there? What separated us from a holy God? What was it? But our sins, wasn't it? Our sins are what separated and blockaded us from the presence of God. Because if we got too close, we saw this in the Old Testament many times, His holiness would just consume us. That's what His justice must do, no matter how much He loves us. But now that Christ has died for those sins, the barrier is gone, is ripped, is torn, is open, because the separation between God and man is blown apart. Such that the author of Hebrews says, we now have a boldness and we have confidence to draw near to God, to go to those forbidden places, the Holy of Holies, right before His presence. And don't you know, when we die and you get to see God in Christ, that's what we get. We get God. We get to see His face, the one who loved us and gave Himself for us. But the only way you're getting in there so to speak, is because you got this sacrifice and you got this high priest named Jesus Christ who died for your sins. It's like he pushes out the curtain and he calls you in. Come on back here. Come backstage into the green room with God. I got you. I paid for this. You better come. The veil's tearing declares for us all all that God has made the way. So draw near with confidence because he paid for it all. Back to Matthew 27 then. Next we see the next great work that Matthew draws out. We see the rocks split and we see the earth shakes. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This kind of activity often in the Bible is associated with the very end of time. When everything's shaking and coming apart. This means the glorious salvation of God's people, but also the judgment of God upon the earth. But the only reason that shaking is hopeful now, that the glorious, that it will be a good end for us, that it's hopeful, well, it's because God will come in that day to shake the world, and we can actually find mercy. We can find forgiveness, find a refuge, not judgment. Don't you see? The death of Jesus has shaken the world and changed everything. Third, what does this death do? We find that the dead are raised to life because Jesus has died. Verse 52 and 53. The tombs also were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, this is interesting, isn't it? Seems a little strange, honestly. And at least in part because with these comments, Matthew has looked into the future a couple days to Jesus' own resurrection, and he talks about those realities now in this text. Because notice the language at the beginning of verse 53 about these saints. They came out of their tombs, but it's after his resurrection. Matthew's looking ahead to Jesus' resurrection, and he's saying, what came with that? 
and it only came with it because of the cross, and this is his point. Well, what did come with that? Well, after Jesus' own resurrection, though it's little spoken about, he wasn't the only one who came out of a tomb. Many other appears, believers from the Old Testament, we would say, were raised to life as well, such that a number of them even wandered into Jerusalem, and many others saw them. Now, it's hard to imagine what that's like, but put far away from your mind any zombie apocalypse, okay? These are resurrected, glorified saints walking after their hope and their Lord, the risen Jesus. What's the point? Here's Matthew's point, and this is why he frames it this way. He brings the resurrection from the future and talks about it now. Because that resurrection is only possible if Jesus died for sin and paid the price for sin. Because see, the ultimate cause of death, where it came from, where did it start with? It came with sin. But evidently, the resurrection is possible because sin was really dealt with. This is what Matthew tells us. Tells it by Jesus' own resurrection and the resurrection of these long-time saints of old. Sin has lost. The death blow has been made at the cross. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but Jesus paid for all the sins and rose from the dead to prove it. Finally, the great power seen in Jesus' death is that he can take unbelieving hearts and bring them to regeneration, give them new life right in their chest. Look at this. For the great power seen in Jesus' death, it leads to the honest investigator, which means the Holy Spirit aided one, to make the only conclusion you can, that when you see what Jesus' death really did, this is not a normal guy. Something's different about him. And seeing this can turn the oblivious or the hard-hearted or callous heart and make it alive. And as this Roman watched, he couldn't help but come to that conclusion himself. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is perhaps the high point of the gospel. We've had many professing faith in Christ, of course, notably Peter in chapter 16, but here it comes from a Roman centurion. He even knows who Jesus is. He is now the risen Son of God. But how could all these things happen that lead to this conclusion? How can a death be so powerful? How can the death of just one guy accomplish so much? Well, understand, he was no normal guy. He was no ordinary fellow. He was the eternal Son of God, dying on the cross, bearing our sin, absorbing the wrath of God, that in Christ we are totally safe. And more than that, we are not just saved from disaster, but as we've talked about, we are being called into fellowship with Him. Called into the Holy of Holies, so to speak, into that holy fire, the good God, the everlasting Creator, before our Redeemer's face. The cross means that we are beckoned to draw near even with full assurance of faith. Even when we feel weak and we feel overwhelmed, we hear the call because of what the cross has done. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Or we're invited forward. 
When we need help in our temptation and our struggles, we hear this from Hebrews chapter 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because that's what the cross has accomplished. Confidence to draw near. And we are even called down and closer to him even when we failed. That we might know his forgiveness through Christ once more. We are invited in, like 1 John 1 promises. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is that true? It's only because of the cross. Finally, we draw near with full assurance of faith, looking at the cross because we know beyond all shadow of a doubt that God is for us in Christ. He's for you and always, but we know it only because of the cross. Romans 8. 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things, Paul says, ruminating on the gospel? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do we know God's for us? Verse 32, he goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know he is for us? How do we know he is true? How do we know he is for us when we feel like we've been forsaken? We know it by just one death, but that's because the one who died for us was not just any one. He was the only one, the eternal Son of God who came from heaven to be slain, but He's now the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. See the extraordinary nature of Jesus' death so that you would confess and believe that He is the Son of God, the only Savior. And with that word, if that is your hope, then join us in partaking this table. I'm going to ask the men to come forward who have been designated to distribute the elements. If your hope is in Christ alone as your Savior and Redeemer, and you've made that publicly known, that is, others know you trust Christ alone, then join us in celebrating this table. But if you have not yet publicly made known your faith in Jesus Christ alone, do not yet partake of these elements. By the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11, you could be drinking judgment unto yourself. Let me pray, and then the men will distribute the elements. Oh, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks because you are alive. We give you thanks because you are our Redeemer. We give you thanks because you are a Savior. We need it. We need it even this moment. We confess that we are sinners. We've not loved you with all that we are. We've not lived a life that is worthy of you in total. So we pray you forgive us. May your people, as we partake, be reminded and assured of what you have done, that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that we would cry, Abba, Father, and rejoice and revel in the great work of Christ, in whose name alone we pray. Amen.